Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 102 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Ray Diamonds. And I'm joined here by my affluent co-host, former market maker, 20 years and current day retail trader, the OG market maker from House Street. The market makers nowadays think that they're hard. But my co-host thinks harder than they think they is. The Silverback, JJ, how's it going? Good, brother. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing excellent. And our guest today is the COO and head of strategic partnerships for Wolf Financial. He has work experience at Goldman Sachs and Versa Capital Management, a Drexel graduate and the man who's hosting over 40 hours of Twitter spaces per week. Of course, I'm talking about Gab Blacksburg. Gab, how's it going, man? Living the dream. Thanks for having me on all day, Ray. Hey, my pleasure, man. Gab lounging in uh, the Doctor Strange setup over there uh, for the people watching the video. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Gab, man. I, I think just a natural starting point uh, for our conversation would be uh, your introduction into finance when did you first gain interest in the markets first gain interest in the markets in 11th grade of high school i had a macroeconomics teacher that started a grade-wide market watch game with you know everybody gets a hundred thousand dollars of fake money most kids had zero interest in it but the next thing i know i'm hooked i am not paying attention to physics class i am day trading in the back of class for about two hours a day in high school instead of going and playing basketball at recess i'm going to my macroeconomics teacher's office and talking about gold stocks and it kind of just took a took a roll from there. Um, ended up uh, beating the entire class in the competition. Returned about twenty five percent in six months. And really, it was just like this is awesome. I want to learn more about this, and that's what led me into going down the finance realm. That's 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 dope, man. You know, I it seems like you know for you know all the shit we give like school schooling and stuff. Um, I feel like a lot of people's introduction into markets is through that like little uh, uh, game. Hey, you get a hundred k. How are you going to invest it? And, and people get hooked from there. Um, that's interesting because we, we've heard that story numerous times. That's people's introduction to the market. Um, so, so you worked at Goldman, I guess. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And, and from my understanding, the, it's a tough process, uh, the, you know, just to even get hired. Yeah, definitely. It is an interesting process. I think what they were looking for more in my situation, as a lot of people tell you in these interviews, is just that personality, right? What I learned was a little bit like, Half of, I think, interviewing at these places is they're looking at, can I stand sitting next to you at a desk for 10 hours a day, right? Exactly. And yeah, like, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, yep. they're, looking, they're looking for someone that they can have that relationship with, um, that they can work with, somebody who I think is eager to learn as well. And so, you know, those were all the things that I stressed in the interview. Um, my position at Goldman was in private wealth management. So we weren't actively trading. We were people, people, right? We had to deal with talking with high net worth individuals on a daily basis, with prospecting through individuals, with explaining to them, you know, why they're down 30 million by 9.50 a.m. because the market's moving one way or, or the other on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that's what I expected going into the interview for them to be looking for was a people person. So I just made it all about personality and they're all about wanting to learn all about, you know, Hey, when that phone rings, you know, I've got it on the first ring. I'm not waiting for another analyst to pick it up. I don't care if I've been there a week, I'm going to be on the lines talking to people and excited to do so. And so I think that that translated really well throughout the interview process. And then of course there were some technical pieces to it. Um, I worked in the industry a little bit beforehand. So had some experience there, made sure to brush up on all my stuff that I thought that they could ask me, talk with a lot of other people who had 
uh, worked at Goldman or interviewed at Goldman in the beforehand stages. Um, but then the job uh, was just really focused, I think, heavily on that people person nature of talking with people on a daily basis who are high net worth clients and reassuring them uh, about their positions in the market, um, helping them create new portfolios. Let's say they want to bring in like their kid or something, talking with them about, you know, would you want to be more aggressive, conservative, and then also just really working well with the rest of the entire Goldman conglomerate, because like I said, we are working with GSAM, we're working with other areas to help people actually then implement these portfolios. So that was a little bit just to start it off. Sweet, man. And it, it sounds like you were uh, you were prepared for this interview process. What did, did you do some prep beforehand? Like what? What? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a dream job of mine, you know, so I really tried to go into it having all my bases covered. And so that just started with, I think the first thing it started with was looking through from Drexel's alumni and finding alumni that had worked at Goldman, right? That's a great way to get jobs at these places Mm -hmm. is going ahead and finding. And it turns out there was uh, a former Drexel person who had uh, gone through the process of being an analyst at Goldman and now was a VP there. I was able to connect with them, really pick their brain. This guy had me wanting to like run through a wall after I got off the call with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was just all in really cool guy, Mike. And so I got a lot from him that I was able to take and write down. And then when it went into the interview process, um, I'm very comfortable in interviews. I like the interview process. I like talking with people. I understand, I think, a lot of the back and forth within there. So it it was a good time all around. I honestly, uh, the one other thing that I'll say is I actually had a friend. um, they They were hiring for multiple positions at the time. And I had a friend that was doing the same interview process with me. And I'll, I'll share this on here, but nobody tell Goldman. Um, he had one day where he had an interview with the, uh, it was a, basically at the final interview. It was with uh, the general uh, manager of like the floor and who was running hiring. Mm-hmm. And his was right before mine. So we actually uh, drove over there together. He went into his interview. He went through it. He came outside, filled me in on everything that had gone on in his interview and then I walked in there and just nailed that thing. So nice. you got to You got to put all the stops out, you know? Yeah. Now, quick question. Did you, did you just come, did you come from a BCom background and how did you go through the recruiting process to actually get the interview? Yeah. So Drexel really helped out with all this stuff. They are just topped here with the ways that they lead you into these opportunities. They have connections um, with multiple areas. So that's how I ended up getting nice. uh, opportunities with the position was all through Drexel. So I will credit them. Um, nice. for doing a great job setting their students up for success. Wonderful. Yeah. And I had, I had actually worked in a little bit of an accounting background before that, which I did not like at all. But that helps, right? Because so much of, of Wall Street is accounting, right? And accounting is, you know. Yeah. I mean, in yeah. like any, I feel like in any interview, they're going to ask you questions that you have to understand cash mm-hmm. flow, balance sheet, income statement in order to answer. Um, and you should be, right? You, you should be expected to know those things. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so tell us, Gav, um, why you left, man. I mean, uh, you know, just talking to you right off the rip, you, you seem like a very good people person, you know how to talk. I'm sure you were very good at the job. So just tell us what, uh, yeah, what led to a transition opportunity. Right. And that's what I think it always comes down to. I had an opportunity to go into the private equity world. And for me, that had always kind of been like that next level. It's like, all right, everybody goes into banking for a couple of years to try to get to private equity. And I personally, although I really was fond about a lot of things we were doing with private wealth, I didn't see myself staying there long term because in order to build out that book, it is so difficult when you're young, right? <laughs> like JJ, like, you know, what I'm talking about like, oh, was, yeah, like to move from analyst to actually being a private wealth manager. To me, it just seemed so much better to 
go do something else for a few years, right? If I want to come back into it, I can always come back into private wealth. Private wealth is sales. Like, exactly. 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 That's like being, that's a very fancy name for stockbroker these days, right? I mean, I, you know, you were a broker in the old days. Now private wealth is, it gives it that mystique, right? Yeah. You know, and you're only talking to high net worth individuals and, and that sort of thing. And, but, you know, you're really, you know, you're putting in them into product and, you know, you're making sure they stay into product and, and, you know, you keep building that relationship over time. So you can, you know, cause it's all, it's all AUM, right? Assets under management, just keep gathering assets. Right. Exactly. So, but yeah, I can understand like, you know, from trading to product, cause I was, I was not a salesman at all. Right. I went straight to set, to trading. And so it's, I understand it's, it's tough because you get, you're babysitting people a lot. Right. So but I, I understand that. Go ahead, Ray. I'm jumping in. Go ahead. I got yeah. more questions when he's done. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just kind of finish up the, that point there. So basically I was um, offered a position in private equity because um, I've been kind of poking around and doing some interviews and that kind of stuff um, just because it was always kind of an area that I worked in public markets for a little while at that point. And I was like, okay, you know, the private markets I think seem pretty interesting. And it was, if you go back to that 2019, 2020 area, the private markets were booming as well. There was a lot of deals getting done mm-hmm. and so came into that private equity position uh, which was great. I was traveling for that too. They were literally, we were basically buying up distressed companies and okay. that had a bunch of debt and basically flipping them. Um, yep. I mean, that was the goal was ultimately redo the board. And I got to travel out and actually like nice. work directly with these CFOs and CEOs on their companies and train that they had, you know, everything they needed to succeed. And then I can get into how that all turned into Wolf, but I'll turn it back to you for now because that's all a pandemic story. Yeah, yeah, no, perfect. That was that was going to be the next question. But before we jump into that, I just got to give a quick shout out to the sponsors of the podcast, Apex Trader and Top Step Funding. Any listener of the podcast that has the skills of passing evaluation can become a prop trader fully funded by either Apex or Top Step Funding. Our own micro e-futures trading community has many members who are now fully funded. No need to trade with your own money. Keep 90% of the profits. To learn more, you can visit our website at microefutures.com. So yeah, Gav, um, so we're in the nine, you know, the uh, 2019, 20, I guess, or now we're going into the pandemic era. This is when Wolf uh, comes about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting how it starts out. And I'll try to make this story pretty, pretty quick. Uh, the pandemic hits. It's like March. Um, I move out of Philadelphia where I was working at a private equity office. And I basically realized that life is about to become a bit of a nightmare as we're running a distressed private equity firm. And the two major companies that I'm staffed on at the moment are a restaurant chain in California and a airline that flies between the Bahamas and Florida. Wow. And I look at these companies and I go, oh, they are so doomed. Oh, they are they are in the, in the crapper. And um, basically I was staffed onto just reading through government documents, trying to find PPE funds to keep these companies afloat. Wow. So I did that for a month and it wasn't very fun. And I kind of, it, it was... I don't know if people can like go back to that time, but there was no end in sight, right? Like the whole world just shut down. And it's like, when is this going to change? And so I get a phone call and I'm very glad I got this phone call. And it's actually two friends of mine from college. And they call me up and they say, we have uh, this idea for a startup and we just started building it out. And we unfortunately, um, you know, have now had to go online and it's just totally screwed everything up. You know, our devs are not communicating with our finance people. And I was like, okay, well, tell me more. Like, what's the idea? And they go, the startup idea is very simple. We just want to make it easy for young people to research docs. And right now, 
there's no super simple interface for this to happen. That's just kind of like, we call it an iOS interface, right? Easy to understand, flip through, rounded edges, that kind of stuff. And they were like, think about it. Like you have a finance degree. Did they really teach you how to deep dive into stocks? I had one DCF class, right? Like not much more than that, that led me to thinking that I could comfortably build this out. I had to learn everything at work. I had to learn it all on the job. Um, but it shouldn't necessarily be that way. And a lot of people aren't going to have jobs that teach them how to invest, right? That they still need to in order to become, I mean, wealthy ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so they call me up and they say, so we're, so we have this idea. We want to build out just an app that makes finance easy for people. And here's some of the concepts. And I go, this is very interesting, but their pitch to me was a little bit different because I was used to being kind of brought in for, uh, the finance role, the CFO role. Um, but instead they hit me up and they say, we want you to come on as COO. Uh, as and running operations. So I was like, okay, that's unique, a little bit more of in the thick of things. And so I come on and we spend the next eight months and we build out an MVP product. And ultimately it kind of formulates into one of those uh, social finance products, kind of like a stock twits or a public, you may have seen some of them. Mm -hmm. And at this point it's like, okay, now we need to get users. How do we get users? Social media, you got to go and build a presence on social media. And that basically gets tasked onto me because I'm a social media guy. And so I create that Wolf Twitter account and I start building on Twitter, start interacting with people over the next six months, gain a few hundred followers, and then Twitter spaces drop. And that is just the game-changing moment where in about two years ago at this point, I go in and I listen. It's like 1 a.m. in the morning and I hear my first Twitter space and it's literally just people talking over each other, complete nonsense. There's nothing <laughs> of value. And I go, this is it. Like, this is the next big thing. This is how we are going to build a brand. And immediately I was hooked. I said, I need to have access to it. Nobody had access to spaces, like a hundred people in the world. So I got in touch. I basically cold DM'd every single email that I could find of a person who worked at Twitter on Twitter spaces. Mm -hmm. And uh, within about a week, I, I write personalized cold DMs like, oh, you're the Android tech lead. That's so cool. I, uh, you know, I love this product and I get access within a week and they bring me in house basically as a beta tester. Oh, and God. immediately just the spaces start popping off and I'm growing it. So at this time, the company has had the MVP out. We now have some users. So they're focusing now on funding. So they switch from courses. And at this point, I mean, it's the easiest time in history to raise funding, right? Like, like everybody's just yeah. getting like, like crazy valuations. So we said, we're going to raise on a safe $10 million cap and we're going to go to market. And so the CEO and the CFO focus on funding and I just dive into spaces and I'm just like, I'm going to build our brand and we're going to show this to investors. Like, Hey, look how fast we're growing. We take it to them and we realize that even in the easiest time in history to raise capital, it doesn't matter if you don't have something that can be protected and patented and you will exactly. still go through a hundred VC meetings and get shut down every time. Um, so that's kind of the, the wake up call to us. It's like, oh, you need more. So we're like, okay, what can we put into this? And so we start mulling over the ideas and ultimately came up with a stock insurance product. Um, can't go too far into it right now, say for certain reasons, but this product was patentable. We got a provisional patent on it. And this really enticed investors. The problem is the investors then were saying to us, all right, we love what you just patented. Like this technology is game changing, but why are you building it into a social finance app? Like you're gonna have to raise $50 million just to build out the social media, this, that. So it all comes to a crossroads 14 months ago where ultimately they just say like, you need to pivot. You need to fully focus on just building this product, go B2B with it, sell it to uh, brokerages and leave behind what you've built the last two years. The company makes a very difficult decision, I would say, because we put a lot of time and effort. And at this point, we basically split into two companies. The original CEO 
and CFO split into building out this API B2B. And I, at the meantime, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we're like pivoting. Like I just spent, you know, a year, like I am Wolf. Like I built this company. Like we have a presence online. We've got like 40,000 followers. And so I decided I'm not leaving what I've built. And so I use a part of my equity and I buy the entire Wolf Financial brand off of the company, including all of its social products, social assets, everything like that. They basically change their name. They switch over and I go full-time with Twitter Spaces, become like the Twitter Spaces guy. That was 14 months ago. Accounts up over 100,000 followers since. I've had some great moments. You know, Elon Musk joining our spaces and so much more. Uh, but yeah, sorry. I know it was a bit of a long story, but that's kind of the that's transition. That's good. So, no, it's good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good because... I, I talk to a lot of people who, you know, want to start startups and things like that. And, and they come to me for advice and um, they have a hard time pivoting. They have a hard time knowing what's important. They have a hard time, um, you know, just in business because they don't have any experience. So these kind of stories really, really help people. So what is your focus with Wolf now? And how is that, you know, how are you going to turn that into cash? Well, I'll tell you, it's making cash. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So after going full-time with Twitter spaces, which was yeah. made in two Decembers ago, it was a good question. It was, how is this going to make any money? I knew that people made money off social media. I just didn't really know how, but I figured I would take the stab and <laughs> I didn't have to wait long. Uh, January 7th, about two, three weeks after I'd taken over the brand, I get a DM on Twitter and it's from a company and they say, we'd like to sponsor one of your Twitter spaces. Beautiful. And I go, ah, well, what do, what do you know? And nice. I basically play this back and forth with game game with them two, for two days saying, well, what would you pay? Right? Well, I don't know what to sell sponsored Twitter space for. What does yeah. that even mean? All my spaces have always been free. And after two days, they finally come back to me and they say, we'll pay $1,000 for the hour. And I go, ding, uh, that, that sounds nice. good. Uh, interesting. And I kind of then realized like, hey, there's a market for this. People want to advertise on these Twitter spaces. And that's what I've really leaned into over the last year. So now um, it's a full show. It's 40 hours a week. I bring on like 100 guests a week, uh, all different types of areas of the market, livestock trading, real estate, personal finance. And then companies that are within these genres can come in and they can sponsor time and they can either get a full interview live on spaces where I talk with them about their company mm -hmm. and deep dive. And I've had public companies now coming on and doing that. Or they can just like radio, have an ad read come out you know, every 20, 30 minutes. So there's multiple ways to go about it. But yeah, that's the focus. Beautiful, beautiful. Love, love to see how this works. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I'm going to be taking a couple of deals public later on this year and next year. So, you know, we'll have some advertising for you there too. There you go. Beautiful. Uh, I had the first ever publicly traded cannabis company in Europe did their launch on uh, nice. my Twitter space, which was kind of cool. Nice, nice. Good stuff. That's really yeah. cool. It's I, really, it's it's fascinating for me because I'm old. I'm, I'm 54. And Goldman is like, you know, I, I didn't have the opportunities to, you know, you know, go through and get a white shoe education and stuff like that. I was a bouncer. I worked my way through the penny stock market, through the sewers, you know, and I've, I worked my way up to doing, you know, taking NASDAQ companies public and then trading out the stock. So I've actually been on the floor at Goldman back in the day when they took over Spear Leeds and Kellogg and Goldman has that aura, you know, like you go through Goldman, you become a partner, you know, you work your way through it. Next thing you know, that's how you become secretary of the treasury or, you yeah. know, you have your own fund, you know, guys like um, it, Corzine and, and all of those guys. Right. And of course, you, 
you know, I mean, she worked there. So, you know, the, the story of Sidney Weinberg, how he started there as a janitor making three bucks a week and, you know, worked there for 60 years and ran the company, you know. So it's got this very, very storied history. So, you know, when Ray, you know, Ray said, hey, look at this guy, you know, he's 24 and he left Goldman. I'm like, I was like why would you leave Goldman, right? So that's how the old people look at it. I mean, like Goldman is like a golden ticket, right? Now, wealth management is a little different than investment banking or trading. Yeah. So I, I do understand. I, I, I get that. And in private equity, you're actually on deal teams, which, which is very, you know, that's very enticing. There, there was opportunities in trading. I actually, um, my biggest thing that I focused on while I was at Goldman was networking throughout the company. So nice. I probably over the course of while I was there met with 70 plus people one-on-one. Um, mm-hmm. I filled out multiple notebooks with just information about them as I went through these meetings. Cool. And I did connect with the trading team and they did kind of slip in that there was opportunity if I wanted to come down that way. Um, but for me, I think the Goldman thing was always like, once I got the job and once I was in it, it was like, all right, this opens the door, right? To me, it was never like, this is the end goal. It was like, the door is open now. I have all this opportunity. Let me take advantage of it. That's what I saw it as. Yeah, no, no, that's that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just trying to get a perspective of someone who's younger. And I think it's really great because we have a lot of young people who approach me and go, help me get a job in the industry. How do I do it? And it's good if they hear from somebody who's actually gone through it, you know, and not 25 years ago, right? Yeah. So this is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, Gav, I, I give you a ton of credit, man, for being early on the Twitter spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible. Like, what what was it about the like the spaces format that you thought this was going to be a hit? I'll tell you. So I was always trying to master that cold DM art, right? And just get things out there. And I never had a problem with it. I still send out hundreds of DMs a week. But in the early days, it's very, very difficult when you have a small account to get people to answer them. And so I would be incessantly DMing and I would put all these value propositions in them. And then I would jump in their comments and engage with them for day after day after day. Nothing, right? They're not commenting back. They're not answering. They're not even liking my posts. Maybe once in a while they like it. And it's like, hurrah. When I come to spaces and someone be hosting a space, I come in there, sit in there for about 30, 45 minutes. So they could see I'm active, you know, reacting with emojis. All of a sudden, I tap the request button. Next thing I know, I'm up on stage. And much better than you know getting a comment back, I'm having an actual conversation with the person. So to me, the entire value proposition of Twitter Spaces was access. I thought it was access like I'd never seen before, that I'd be able to talk to people I'd never get before. And then the one other piece with it was, I could just tell from the way that people were hosting that there was an immediate attraction to it. Like nowadays, everyone has Twitter Spaces. So if you're a small account, you go and host like a space, like good luck getting five listeners. But when I first started, nobody had Twitter Spaces. So when I first hosted, 350 people were in there off the bat and I was getting a hundred followers an hour and it was like incredible immediate reward. So there were so many things that I think led me to it. I was surprised more people didn't see it off the bat, but my just, all I could think was like, in my mind, it was kind of like, um, I don't know if you remember when Facebook ads first started getting popular and it was like, mm-hmm. holy cow, the bang for your buck, right? Definitely. I just saw it as that. I was like, I need to get in before this gets saturated and I need to be early. And then I actually ended up um, coming on payroll for Twitter um, at one point uh, about a year and a half ago where they brought me on payroll explicitly because they were like, we want you to host, just focus on hosting spaces. And so they were paying me to host spaces. They promoted my Twitter spaces into their algorithm specifically. And so there was just a lot of incentive behind it. Man, good, good shit, man. That's awesome, man. That's, that's great to hear uh, from somebody who, you know, like does podcast thing. Right. Um, I think one of the struggles can like keep it, you know, keeping it fresh, keeping it new. I mean, you're doing 40 plus hours 
a week and you've been doing it for a while, um, maybe just give me some tips or, or like, like, how do you, how do you deal with that with like, you know, you know, I, I guess it could feel stale at times, right? Yeah. So three tips I would say first, like it, it just comes back to that cold DMing. I'm always trying to get new guests, right? I've DM'd every single person that's been on CNBC. Like I've DM'd, you know, all these different people and I consistently am trying to bring in new guests, new faces, new audiences that come along with them. Uh, number two, uh, I don't know how people do it with all other topics, but the stock market is a beautiful thing. It is open almost, you know, all the time, right? Except the weekends where I don't host spaces. So there's always something to talk about, even if it's just spy moving a little bit, even if it's an option trade that just went, you know, 50%, there's always little pieces to talk about when it comes to the stock market. And then number three, which is kind of funny, the fact that I work with sponsors actually helps create a differentiation of my content because I always have these new companies coming on spaces and I'm creating content explicitly for sponsors. So I'm kind of, getting incentivized to do it, but I think it's also mixing it up from the regular content. So it's a very symbiotic ecosystem. No, that's awesome. Makes a lot of sense. You know, I um, feel very fortunate um, in my journey, like uh, as a trader and investor, like being able to host this podcast, because I've been able to talk to like so many good traders um, and investors and like that alone, even if no one listened to it, I would, you know, I'm just grateful for that. Um, yes. Question to you is, um, is there anything that stands out to you that you've learned along the way? I I'm sure you probably feel similar to the way I do. Well, I, I love what you just said. I actually, in the beginning days, I started a podcast as well. I did a hundred episodes and then I kind of got real busy with Twitter spaces, but it was exactly what you just said. Like find any reason to give people to speak back to you, right? To network with you. That's what I've learned just over time is just always give them a reason. And when I reached out to people with an actual proposition of, Hey, you should come on my podcast. It was so much more than, Hey, will you jump on a zoom call with me? Right. Because it just had that aura to it. So I love what you're saying right there. And then the other piece, and you know, people see my 40 hours of spaces, they don't see the other 20 hours I put in a week to set up those 40 hours of spaces, right? Um, but on the note of the spaces, I love the idea of working in public. I think the more that you can push into the public and working in public and people seeing you working, the better that things come back to you, right? Like you guys putting out this podcast consistently, people see that you're working, they see that you're doing stuff, people that are making content, like you got to be consistent with it. I think the more that people see you consistently putting out stuff, the more that they come to you. Um, I'm very lucky. I get about 90% of my business comes to me. I don't have to, I do cold outreach for like speakers and stuff, but majority of the sponsors, they, what happens is someone sponsors one of my Twitter spaces. I do a Twitter space with them. I'm talking about them, promoting them. There's three other people in the crowd that go, wow, uh, this is great. I'd love to be talked about on a space. They DM me and say, how do I get on a space? Right? So just continuing that loop cycle. And it only happens from working in public. So even if you're building a startup, document the process, right? Talk about it in public create a following and an audience that cares about it because you care about it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any, any particular uh, space that really stands out um, to you? I know you said you had Elon on, did, did he, yeah. Did he speak on out. Or... yeah, yeah. We, we did not coordinate it. Uh, he did not answer any DMS. He just showed up and uh, all of a sudden there were 60,000 people in the space. Shout out to my friend stock market news who was hosting. I was coasting and running that with him. Um, so that one was really, really fun. What was crazy about that space in particular is that when Elon came on and we started talking about Tesla, Tesla stock started moving. Tesla stock actually moved 2.7% because of that space, <laughs> uh, which is wild when you think about it, that there were people in the audience that were uh, billions of dollars was getting bought up. And it's just like, who is in our Twitter spaces right now doing this? Because it hasn't been picked up by a single mainstream media news outlet yet. And the market's already moving. So that was fascinating to see. Plus, I got some of my questions answered on just some of the things that Twitter was doing. 
Um, for example, like Elon making a decision via poll, like we got certainty from that. We got a commitment from Elon that he wouldn't sell more Tesla stock, literally on spaces, like things like that. So that stands out. Um, outside of that one, um, I, I've, I've had a good amount. I mean, there's there's so many, like hundreds and hundreds at this point. Um, there's been incredible guests that have come on. We've had you know, CEOs of publicly traded companies, employees from Twitter that have come on and spoken about the process of building spaces, uh, top tier investors who you know can draw thousands and thousands of people into the space at once. Uh, there's always something fun. Uh, we've got Grant Cardone coming on next week uh, oh, to talk some real estate. So yeah, always fun names. Mr. 10X. Yeah, yeah. 10X, 10X, 10X. <laughs> Grant Cardone, he's, fu- he's funny, man. Um, he's something else. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, man. So we're, you know, we're a retail trading podcast. Um, Want to ask you maybe just a little bit about your own like trading um, and investing. How, how do you, uh, how do you attack the stock market? Yeah, for sure. So majority of my portfolio is um, set up on a DCA plan. So that's like the the large stuff because I'm pretty young. And so my time horizon for most of my money is wow. decades away. And mm-hmm. I realized um, pretty early on that there's a real value to time in the market. So this is aside from the trading stuff. Um, I've got, you know, a solo 401k and basically, I mean, I already maxed out the Roth this year, but solo 401k as well as a brokerage account. Money goes in every single month. It automatically pulls it from my account. I don't have to press any buttons. Then it automatically DCAs it into several broad-based index funds. So that's like the long-term investing side is all set up for me and I don't have to think about it, which is perfect for me um, because sometimes you get two in your head and you're like, oh, SPY's down today. Should I sure. should I buy today or SPY's up? So that's what happens there. Um, aside from that, I run a couple other portfolios. So I have my trading portfolio, which I basically am using for Twitter spaces. And that is one where I'm actively trading on Twitter spaces. I trade mainly on the five minute time frame, uh, typically off of three different indicators. So I use VWAP, I use FIBS, and then I use hedge pressure. And I think hedge pressure is probably the most uh, rare of those that people are using. And that's a tool that a friend of mine built. Uh, the company is called Rocket Scooter. And what it does is it basically pulls all the option positions from hedge funds and it shows you on the weekly and on the monthly where hedge funds have positioned themselves. And then basically it's, it's like magic for finding volume. When we get to those points, like volume just comes in heavy, heavy, heavy. And so then I'll trade off that volume. And it also has a setup based on like, is the monthly hedge pressure higher than the weekly? And there's, there's, there's a whole curriculum to it that I won't go through right here, but those are three of my main indicators that I'm using. Um, I like them because they're both past looking with those view apps and forward looking with hedge pressure. So it creates a nice symbiotic relationship for me. Um, but my favorite thing with my trading style is that it's very social because I trade with all these traders every day. So I get like, I feel like the best of the best ideas just consistently brought through to me. Any yeah. trade that's given out on my spaces, I enter it into a tracker so I can see every single person who's trading on my spaces, how they're doing, how they're performing. Um, and then I, you know, kind of like to think that I take the best of the best of those trades that are actually given out on there. Um, and then I have outside of that one other portfolio, which is a equity like swing uh, with longer style portfolio, um, which is more just like common stock. So three portfolios overall, one is just DCA, one is more like swing. And then one is my active trading on spaces with those three indicators. Yeah, that's, that's dope, man. So hedge pressure, that's what, that was the name of the indicator. If Yeah. It's rocket scooter. AI is the company. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't like talk about it if I just did it. If it, it's uncanny, dude, like you get to like the line and it's like all of a sudden it's like, whoa, volume spike. It's like, why is 205.6 a volume spike? There's no fib here or anything. And you're like, ah, okay. They're all positioned right here with their 
options mm-hmm. and they need the market to go in a specific way. So they're all coming in. So I find it fascinating. We do um, we do a weekly space every Tuesday at 9, 15 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically just trading with their product for an hour. Interesting. Cool, cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for bringing that up. Um, uh, I, I see you on your on your spaces. You have some uh, crypto and uh, NFT um, people coming on there. Uh, do you have any exposure uh, to those markets? Yeah, I've got crypto. I would say about five to seven percent of my portfolio is in crypto at the moment. Um, uh, part of that is there's a coin called Voxel that I'm an advisor of. So I have um, some in there because um, I think it's good to have exposure to stuff that you're on an advisor of. Mm-hmm. Um, so working with them, they're kind of like a Solana alternative. Um, outside of that, I've got some Bitcoin, some Ethereum, some USDC, nothing too crazy um, beyond that. But I've certainly been in the crypto ecosystem. I was hosting some of the earlier day crypto Twitter spaces as you know, Bitcoin was making its first run up. Um, I was buying, I bought Bitcoin at 12K originally, I think, when it was first like coming back up before it went to 60 and Ethereum at like five, 600. Um, so I was definitely like invested and intrigued. Um, and I personally like, you know, crypto gets all the reps that it's going to get and it gets like all the price stuff and everything. But I just like the use cases. Like there's just people that I interact with with all different types of countries and sponsors who just like can't use Venmo, can't use other stuff. And we deal with crypto and it's like, there's such a clear use case to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. Very, very clear, very clear. Um, what about uh, any, any NFTs or anything like that? I mean, I've got NFTs. Uh, if anyone wants to check it out, I, it's on the blockchain so you can see them. My wallets, I think uh, if you go to open, see at Wolf underscore financial, I'm pretty sure you can see all my NFTs. Um, they're not too valuable. I think I have probably maybe a couple grand worth of NFTs. Um, so nothing too crazy. But for me, um, I just, you know, I was there during the craze. I was there during the rage as it went up. I was trading a little bit of NFTs. Um, I'm positive on F- NFTs all time. I've made money on them. So I'm happy with it. I like I like NFTs, man. I I just I just think it's interesting, and then just like the um, uh, just the communities that people like really swarm to around it. It's uh, it's just pretty pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. Um, JJ, I guess um, any uh, any more questions for Gav before we get out of here? No, no, I'm just uh, really happy that you came by and learned a little today, which is nice. Always nice for an old dog to learn some new tricks, and really um, very very. Uh, you know, it's it's great to see how you, you know, took a traditional, you know, uh, finance background and turned it and actually created something. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And I wish you all all the luck in the world. And uh, I, I hope uh, I hope good things happen with this. Keep in touch with us and we'll have you back on because we can learn a lot from you. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, or man's a go-getter. Gav, I'm going to ask you one more thing, though, before you get out of here, man, because uh, for, for the listeners, for um, for the new traders, maybe for the struggling traders, um, I know there's no, like, just one quick uh, thing that's going to fix their problems, but I guess just, like, any advice for, for someone getting started and who are struggling? The last couple of years have arguably been the most difficult time in history to trade, right? We have had a market that significantly ran up, got arguably very overvalued reset that complete valuation and now just doesn't know its way it wants to go because we're all just holding our breath waiting for the fed to pivot right so like if you're struggling right now so are most hedge funds right majority of them have underperformed spy the last two years you're not alone within it um i would say a couple things one um significantly decrease your position sizing until you are consistently profitable with it if you're only taking two to three contracts at a time that's totally fine i like having more than one just so you have the ability to trim 
um, and, and, you know, get yourself some profit and actually just play things a little bit more comfortably. But even if you're going tiny size, that's fine. Um, number two, uh, I would recommend, you know, understanding that trading is just like any other job. It requires a lot of homework effort put in beforehand. If you spend down, you know, sit down on the weekend and you spend two hours and instead of playing video games, you look through all your charts and you map out every single point and you create a system that's going to be, you know, you're modeling it off of others who have had accuracy and you're putting in the time and effort. Then like when that trade pops up on Tuesday, you know, at like 3.30 PM, you're going to be a lot more confident about taking it because you already saw it and already know exactly where it's going. Um, and then just number three is like, get a mentor, right? Trading again, no different than a lot of other areas of life. You can either do it yourself and struggle for months and months and months and maybe figure it out, or you can get a mentor and have a lot of guidance and figure these things out in a much quicker amount of time and have people show you where you're going wrong in so many areas. So those are like the three things I would just pay attention to. Like you're not alone, put in the time and effort, get a mentor. And if those three things don't help, then maybe trading isn't for you. Great advice. Great advice. And with that, that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join a supportive and professional community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Gav, let the listeners know where they can find you and anything else you want them to know. At Wolf underscore financial on Twitter is all you need to know. It's where you can find everything and you can come in to the link in my bio there if you want to find my other socials. Good stuff. Good stuff, Gav. Appreciate your time. And so for Gav Blacksburg, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop, though. So.